That was soprano and 2010 opera honoree Martina Arroyo singing O Patria Mia from Giuseppe Verdi's opera Aida. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Famous for her interpretations of Verdi, Puccini, and Strauss, Martina Arroyo is admired by fans of opera everywhere. Leading soprano at the Metropolitan Opera from 1965 to 1978, she's also performed at major opera houses around the world. She's made over 50 recordings of major operas with conductors such as Leonard Bernstein, Zubin Mehta, and James Levine. She was also a guest on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson over 20 times and made appearances on the television show The Odd Couple. Since her retirement from the stage, Martina Arroyo has become an established teacher of opera and singing at leading universities and conservatories. She was a member of the National Council on the Arts and served as an opera panelist for the NEA. In 2003, she established the Martina Arroyo Foundation, which prepares young singers in the interpretation of operatic roles. Given her career as an artist and as an educator, it's little wonder that she was named a recipient for the NEA's 2010 Opera Honors. I spoke to Martina Arroyo in her New York City apartment early this summer, and you can occasionally hear the roar of the city's traffic. New York is Martina's hometown, she was born and raised in Harlem, and I began our conversation by asking her to tell me about her family. I have a wonderful, big family. Have you ever seen the, the movie of Fat Greek Wedding? Oh, yeah. Well, the, our family is a little bit like that. Her cousins come in, and they bring their friends. I always, I always had access to uh, lots of friends coming in and being a part of the household. So I grew up with a lot of love and a lot of laughter and a lot of having fun within the family. And that's, I think, I used to think it was normal. I thought everybody lived that way. And then I found out later on that, in fact, it was rather special. And another special thing about your family is that when you were young, the family would go to concerts, they'd go to museums, they'd go to the theater. Well, when I was young, my mother took me to these places because she had never been there. And she, her attitude was... What's good for me it was, is not good enough for my daughter. So sometimes friends and family members came along, but it was always my mother pushing me to go and see the museum. And in that, in that process, she learned as well. She became very, very interested in, in museums and, um, and not only museums, but plays and not so much the opera. I, I was introduced to the opera by my school, but anything that she felt she had not experienced and would be important for me to experience and musical theater was your first love. Well, yes. Well, it started with the movies. Come on. When I was a little girl, there was Janie Powell and, and Catherine Grayson, you know. But they sang what I thought was opera. And, and I used to like to imitate them. And I had a voice that couldn't, could do sing the same notes. So, you know, I, I was very thrilled with it. And always thought, which is, I think, interesting, that I could do that and there would be no problem with my being the next movie star. I never thought that there would be a barrier. I grew up not knowing about barriers. Why do you think that is? Because my parents were the type of parents who said you can do and be anything you want. So I wasn't aware until I was an, almost an adult that there were other issues that would have to be dealt with. And even then, my way of thinking was, well, that's your problem. 
you know, I'm going to go along and do what I feel I can do. And since I had so many encouraging people in my life, like my voice teacher, this was very early on because I was still in Hunter High School, Hunter College High School. I grew up with, with an open mind and an open spirit. And I think that's extremely important for any young person, and particularly an artist who then wants to play other characters and, and open their thoughts to being another person. You had set your sights on being a teacher. Yes. Well, you know, if you grow up in um, Harlem or any place where it's not the wealthiest of neighborhoods, you, you, you're a doctor, lawyer, or an Indian chief. You know, it never occurred to me to be an astronaut or a high-fashion model. You chose from those professions that were considered good, steady professions, and I loved teaching very much and still do. In, in fact, when young people say to me things like, oh, if I didn't sing, I couldn't do anything, I, I say, well, then you better find something else that will make you happy because if you don't have a career, you don't want to be a miserable human being. This is your only chance. You know, This is not a rehearsal. And since I knew, even after starting the career, that I could go back and teach and enjoy teaching, except that I wanted to teach in a high school or a college. I didn't imagine teaching a group of young artists, to, not teaching them, but helping them to go on their way as we're doing now. But that too developed, that developed out of the career. Now, how did the career develop? What made you first look at opera as a possibility? The old story, of course, is I was going to Hunter College High School and the, the college opera workshop used to rehearse in our auditorium. And we would listen outside as, and as young girls can be, very, very oh, daring. All four of us started imitating the singers. We were caught, and we were taken inside, and as a punishment, we had to sing for the director, Joseph Turnau, who was one of the directors at the Vienna Staatsoper, Vienna Staatsoper. And instead of punishing me, he said, do you want to be a singer? I said, no, I want to be a teacher, thinking that that was really something, be to want to be a teacher. And he instead introduced me to Mrs. Gurevich, Marinka Gurevich, who was my voice teacher, my only voice teacher, and to the opera in terms of studying it. After a few months of going to the opera workshop, I was still in the high school, uh, and then graduating and going into the Hunter College with the help of President Schuster, I just realized that it had taken over my life. That's all I thought about. That's all I wanted to do. Marinka Gurevich, yes. Mrs. Gurevich made you take your voice seriously. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, and she didn't joke. I mean, she she would sometimes would tell me, if you don't do this the way you're supposed to, I'll throw you out. And she meant it. You have to want to do this. And she was very stern. She wasn't teaching me for the money. First of all, I was paying so little, she wouldn't have noticed that I stopped altogether because at that time I was being helped by another family, Mrs. Kufna, Helene Kufna, uh, who stayed also in my life until the very end. It's important to know who your professional family is because you get criticisms and comments and praises from many, many people, but they don't necessarily know your truth. Some people will come up and say, oh, you sang that beautifully, and Mrs. Garevich would smile, and then the next day say, now, this wasn't good, and that didn't work, this was good, uh, let's work on that, because I think that needs work. You have the professional family are the people you listen to. You were a social worker. Yes, also. So that I could take lessons and didn't have to uh, be tied down to an office or, or I couldn't be a teacher and, ta and have this career. Your life as an opera singer and your life as a social worker must have been such a stark contrast. Oh, but that was an experience for me. First of all, I didn't know that there was such a thing as a woman with three children who, with different fathers. That had never come into my life. 
I didn't know that someone could be taken in for being drunk all weekend and leaving their family without care. Uh, I didn't know that there were old people whose children wouldn't give them $15, $20 every month or whatever it was. Because our family was so different, and our and my, I think my parents probably went to the extreme, sheltering me from all of that. Even though I was living in Harlem, um, first on 111th Street in St. Nicholas, and then 154th Street in St. Nicholas Avenue, so my life was really in that part of the city. And there were all of these situations existed, I'm sure, but because we were close and we, because we were in family, I didn't, I wasn't aware of them as much. And for me, that was an eye opener that said, "You better count yourself darn lucky." And my father, before his death, said, I don't want you to, to work in the, with this because if you work with this, everything we try to build will be destroyed by the reality of life out there. And I'm, I'm hoping you never experience these things. But you can't keep someone from experiencing life. Sorry. Well, you ended up winning a scholarship to the Met's Catherine Long School. Yes. Another big crossroads. Yes, that's what Uta Hagen was teaching at the time. You see, that was my first introduction to dealing with character. It just wasn't long enough. It wasn't enough. The Catherine Long School was a, really an eye-opener. First of all, it was my first professional introduction to learning a role. I still think Mrs. Gorevich had more to do with it because she, from the beginning, whether it was a role or whether it was a song, insisted you must know every word you're saying, you must know why you're saying it, you must know to whom you're saying it, and you must know what they, someone says to you. That leads me into my next question of how do you begin to learn an opera? Well, I begin at page one. Now, that wasn't true when I was a young girl. When I was a young girl, I started learning little arias, Having first worked on a great deal of song literature, a lot of Schubert, a lot of young songs, old Italian songs, Mrs. Gorevich, even though I was in the opera workshop, Mrs. Gorevich said, no, 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 you don't touch those roles until you get a, a good, solid background in song literature. And as I said, even in the songs, you had to prepare for the songs properly. The Catherine Long School was about opera. And not necessarily about you, your singing a particular role. It was It was about generally working in a theater. As I remember, it's been a very long time now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not remembering it quite the way, or else I'm remembering it better than it was. <laughs> well, would you translate the opera yourself? Well, I had to do that anyway, but there were many who didn't. As a matter of fact, one of the shocks when we have auditions for our program is that so many teachers do not insist that, the, the, that they learn the uh, translation. And what it really means is you must learn the language. Eventually, you, you, you must know you learn the vocabulary through that translations with dictionaries, but you have to then also know how to conjugate the verbs. You have to know uh, what form the verb is in. You, you have to be careful about the nuances of the language. That all takes a lot of time, whether you have a very beautiful voice or whether you don't have any talent at all. Opera is so complex. Yes. Obviously, there's the singing, and you have to bring a beautiful voice to the table, but I would think that's where you begin. Well, you know, I've heard voices that were not so beautiful, but they said something, and I wanted to hear them. And I've heard other voices that were truly gorgeous to the ear, but they said nothing to me, and I was bored after five or ten minutes. So you do need the combination. You need to please the ear, but also the mind and the heart. You don't always do it 100%. Nobody, I'm not trying to sit here and say that I'm the, a perfect singer or a perfect performer. I'm trying to say that's what I strive for. And I hope that the young people with whom I work strive for that, that artistry. There's also that characteristic that can't be defined, can't be taught or learned, 
and that's charisma. Uh, yes, and not everybody has charisma. And there are people without very much talent who have charisma, and you just follow them right down the yellow brick road. I don't know how to describe it, but I know when I'm there in front of it, or it's in front of me. But even with charisma, that does not mean you cannot do the groundwork that you must do. You, you only make that charisma stronger when you know who and what you are and how to do it properly. When you talk about it this way, it sounds a little overdone, you know, who gets to do all of this? No, you don't do it all. You strive for it all. You work toward it. And at which point you arrive depends on how much time you had to learn it, how well it suits your voice, what kind of colleagues you're working with, how well they've prepared, what kind of director you have to help you along the way, what kind of conductor that's sensitive to what you're trying to do and you to what he tries to do. There's a lot involved. And sometimes if 50% of it is achieved, that's quite a bit. But rarely do you reach the 100% mark. It's knowing what you're trying for. Yes, yes. And not, not accepting less than going forth the maximum. Do you remember the first time you sang at the Met? Oh, yes. Tell me about it. I didn't get on stage because I was singing the voice from heaven. My mother missed the first performance because she went to the ladies' room, so she didn't really hear me the first time. <laughs> and I only tell that story because, I don't know, there was something so so right about it. You know, it, it would be my mother. It would be just when I was singing. She came to every other performance after that as long as she was alive, except when it was a performance she didn't like. She, wasn't, she didn't care for the Lohengrin and Wieland Wagner. And usually after the first or second, after the second or third, actually, performance, she would say her bursitis was bothering her in her left arm. I won't go tonight. But then when I got home, I would say, how's your bursitis? And she'd touch her right arm and say, oh, it's much better. <laughs> When you were young, you did a lot of concert work. Oh, yes. That was a requirement. Mrs. Gorevich felt not only concert work with orchestra and, and oratorio, but recital work. Lots of it. As a matter of fact, many people don't realize that I had a long career in, in recital and oratorio before coming back to the Met. Which you did in 1965. That's when you returned to the Met as a last-minute replacement for Birgit Nielsen. <laughs> Singing Nobody Aida. replaces Birka Nielsen. <laughs> you just sing for her that night. <laughs> you did pretty well. Well, thank you. But you see, I think New York, the New York public is just fabulous. They'll always help you out. All you have to do is show that you're willing to be there. You have a little bit of talent, and they're on your side. That's true. Can you tell me that story? How did you find out you were singing Aida? I got a telephone call, and the first person to call was Robert Herman, and I thought it was a friend joking so I said, I'm so sorry, I can't do it. I have to go to the movies, you know. And then Mr. Bing called, and he was serious, <laughs> and I knew it was Mr. Bing. I was out of my mind thrilled because you don't think that moment you can't do it or you don't think when, it, when was the last time I sang. I, you think this is Metropolitan Opera. It's a, it's a chance to go on that stage and sing the entire role. And I think when you're very young, you never think you can't do something. I think that you always think you can and that's the wonder, one of the wonders of being young. And you receive this glorious ovation. Yeah. But during the second act, the triumphal scene, when I finally realized I, I didn't have to sing, I was standing there holding the crown, and I didn't have to think at that moment about the character and where I was. I shouldn't have gotten out of character, but I guess I did because I looked out and I saw the, uh, the crown on the pillow shaking. My hands were literally shaking. And I thought, don't look down, but I think your knees are knocking too. <laughs> you know? And you had a very long relationship with the Metropolitan yes. Opera. Yes, yes. 
but not only with the Metropolitan Opera as performer, but with the chorus, with the guys who worked on stage, with the orchestra members. We, you know, they they know you by your first name, and and it, it, at that time it was very much a family feeling. You know, we hung out. The guys used to come over to you know, after performances and have a drink and some pasta. The kids in the chorus, I was very close with uh, many of them, and we remained friends even after. So I don't know what it's like singing there now, but at that time it was very, very warm and wonderful. We used to hang out at each other's rehearsals. You know, we'd go to each other's performances and stand in the wings and distract them if we could. <laughs> <laughs> You've sung with many different conductors. Oh, yes. Here's a question that comes from pure ignorance. What does the conductor bring to the performance of the opera? Well, he's the thread that runs throughout the whole opera. He's the one that gives you the high and the low. He's the one that gives you the loud, loudest and the softest points. He's the one that balances or should be balancing the whole growth of the story to the end of the opera. He's extremely important, not so much because he he has to conduct you or tell you what to do, but he keeps you in line with the rest of that thread. The stage director does the same thing. He has the concept. You learn it after a while, but he comes in with the concept of how that opera should grow as the characterization. And, of course, you come with your own ideas, so you, you also react to your colleagues. So there are lots of units melding together in an ideal situation. Now, there have been times when I hadn't met the conductor, I had not met any of my colleagues. You go on stage, you sing, you know rehearsals, and you sing a performance. And for me, those are the worst, no matter how I sing, because you know you're doing your thing rather than working together as a unit. It's hard to think of a more collaborative art. Oh, it should be. And when sometimes people say, oh, this she was trying to show off for herself, that's a stupid thing to do because you're only as good as your colleagues. And your job is to look as well as you can so that when you're being compared, you're up there with them. Not that you're up at the top and there's some other place below. You're not better. I dislike very, very much when someone has the attitude, I'm the star of the evening. You were one of Leonard Bernstein's favorite singers. Yeah, that's what they say. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember any particular performance with him? Well, I remember the St. Paul Verdi Requiem because of St. Paul. That church in London was had an atmosphere that was so spiritual, and everybody was so involved, personally involved, and, and Lenny was at his best during the performance, giving and feeling and feeling with us, with us and letting us feel too. There are lots of performances that stand out in your mind for one reason or the other. With Leonard Bernstein, for example, I loved working at the rehearsal because when he was working at the piano, and just the two of you, he would you know, look at this phrase. Now, you see how he developed this? Now, when you sing that with just a little bit more expansion, you know, all of this energy and all of this love for his music and all his respect for the music and the other composers it rubs off on you, and you feel as though there's not only a, uh, something going on between the two of you with the music and through the music, but it's all positive. And, and that's when I loved him most. There were other times of course, when all of that wasn't happening. But that's true with anybody. You've sung with some extraordinary singers. Oh, yes. You did a great Aida with Placido Domingo. Oh, you're talking about one of the great ones. And, uh, sometimes he's he's so great that I'd like to say he did a great Aida with me, but I can't. <laughs> <laughs> he's an extraordinary artist. To stop and think that he must be 50 by now, if he's not, his son is, um, <laughs> 
and yet he can go in after a full day of riding across country on horseback and he'll go in that night and sing a performance and then after the performance he's off recording something he's got an extraordinary strength uh, a personality of will and this voice that is just unbeatable he's unique he's unique that's all you can say and having him as a colleague I remember when we were younger we had fun together at rehearsals but he was always prepared and always ready to give in performance, he was always there. Your voice was also beautifully matched with Pavarotti. Luciano, look, you're talking about the, the, my baby bear. He was just the, the most lovable man and, and a great singer without even realizing it. You know, He didn't know that he was making no effort yet and still thrilling us with that sound. I was talking to someone else recently, and I said, you know, there were a few singers, Placido being one of them, Luciano another, but also Carlo Bergonzi that when we were on stage, sometimes I had to be careful not to just stop and listen to them sing, stop being the character and say, listen to that, you know, because they, they were just so wonderful. Your last appearance and your 199th performance at the Met was in 1987. It was the 86-87 season, yes. Did you know that that was going to be your last performance there? I didn't think of that as being a farewell performance, but I knew that I was winding down just my friends know that uh, when I got to the place that I woke up one morning, during the night actually, and didn't remember where the bathroom was. I sat on the side of the bed and didn't remember where the bathroom was and I was home. And I thought, nope, it's time to slow down. It's time to start thinking about your life. And I wasn't old by any means, but I didn't have that thing, I have to go on, I have to sing at the Met again, you know. I sang other places after that, including Santa and Flying Dutchman. I had fun singing still, um, other recitals, but then after starting the teaching, back to my first love, but it was also, it wasn't a substitute that had to be done. It was something that when I got into it, I enjoyed it so much, I didn't realize that I had almost stopped singing myself. And then by that time, of course, there are other voices, there are other people that take your place. You feel yourself as not being at the best time of your life, vocally or, or, or personally. You want to get on with something, and not everybody feels this way. I mean, Placido certainly does, and I think he's going to sing for at least 100 more years, at least. But I was slowing down, obviously. You began your own foundation yes. in 2003. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to do that? Mainly because this little program had started at IU. Indiana University. Yes, this class of learning a role, but not from the aria and then the duets and, and expanding, but from the beginning. In other words, if you're going to live in that person's skin, who is that person? Who are you? You. Where did you come from? Why do you react this way? What's going on socially that makes you behave this way? If it's been written by a Beaumarchais, you read the original Beaumarchais. If it's in another language, you must translate everything from beginning to end. It's a tall order, but it helps how to study apart. If you do it a few times, I think you won't accept not having this information when you sing apart. Of course, if you have to learn a role in four days and jump on the stage and sing it, that's another story. I'm not trying to say that doesn't happen in life. I'm talking about what, under the ideal circumstances, how do you approach a character? How do you make her live? Here's the unfair question. Is yeah. there a favorite role? I don't know if there's a favorite role. I can tell you people I like. I like Amelia and, uh, very much in Balloween Mascara. I liked Turandot. 
like her, what she cha- how she changes and what she comes from. Butterfly, door butterfly. It's, you know, for me, that, that's a labor of love, singing that part. It's not a labor at all. It's just love. Many parts, but I wouldn't sing a part I didn't like. I loved Lady Macbeth. Oh, is she fun. In 1976, you were appointed to the National Council on the Arts, which is sort of like the board of directors for the NEA. But for six years. And in the years since then, you've served on opera panels at the NEA. I think that's a responsibility. Again, just like when you've had the good luck to have a career, uh, it's your responsibility to turn around and help the next ones coming along, reach out your hands and say, I'm here. I think it's your responsibility, if you're going to be in the arts, to take part in what's going on, if you can. Uh, And I say if you can because if you're not interested, don't do it. If you're not interested, you're not going to give it your all. Now tell me, how did you find out that you were awarded the Opera Honor this year? I got a call, but a long time ago, when I say a long time ago, a couple of months ago, but I was told I couldn't tell anyone until it was announced. And those were the toughest two months because I'm a big talker anyway. And to have to keep that secret was just murder for me. I did tell my husband because I felt that they didn't mean not to tell your husband. And if they did, I goofed. But my friends didn't know. And, and afterwards, when it was announced, and I could talk to about it. And you didn't tell me? I thought I was special, you know. <laughs> so it was a long two months. Oh, but it was a long two months. I couldn't even tell the kids in the class, you know. And now they think they're all going down to Washington. I hope they don't consider it a march. <laughs> <laughs> A well-deserved honor, most certainly. It's nice to say that. I mean it, which is even nicer. (laughs) Thank you very much. That was Soprano and 2010 opera honoree Martina Arroyo. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Aida, composed by Giuseppe Verdi and performed by Martina Arroyo, is used courtesy of Allegro Music Corporation. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. Next week, director of the Michigan Opera Theater, composer, and 2010 opera honoree, David DiChiara. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.